Hi, if you're here today, you're here for our webinar on IMEs in New York. Sitting to my right, your left, this is Yusra Hussein. Say hi, Yusra. Hi. <laughs> Yusra is one of the attorneys here and uh, primarily goes to Jamaica, New York, so that's a fun hearing point. Yes, exciting. Yeah, we're going to be hearing sort of the on-the-ground trial attorney experience, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how it is trying cases in, in Jamaica and the sort of IME concerns we have there. Mm -hmm. All right, so if you're here today, uh, you're here for our uh, webinar series. Today's topic is IMEs in New York. Click, click, not clicking. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> really, computer. Okay. Um, this is totally live, as you can see from that uh, little screw-up right there, <laughs> totally live. Uh, Absolutely ask us questions while we're going. This is our second session today. The first session had great questions, yeah. like 20 questions that we answered live. So uh, second session is up to you guys. See if you can beat first session for how many questions they ask. Um, this basically follows my book. Uh, there is an ch entire chapter in this book on IMEs in New York. If you don't have a copy of this book, please let us know. You can either click the button that says raise your hand or you can send us an email, and we'll absolutely send you out a copy of our handbook. Okay. Uh, let's begin with some of the basics. Right. What's an IME? An IME, independent medical examination. It's a, a medical report provided by our side. Um, and we have a few scenarios where we would want to get an IME. Uh, first and foremost, obviously, if the claimant's doctor puts the claimant at MMI, which rarely ever happens. Never happens. Never happens. <laughs> and also, if the claimant uh, has filed a C4.3, which is a permanency report. Uh, we definitely want to get an IME in those situations. Um, and also, if there is medical treatment that's requested by the treating physician, MG2 or C4 auth, we want to get an IME to challenge that medical treatment. Um, and lastly, if there's any disputed body parts, any consequential injuries, um, any causally related sites that you don't want to accept, we want to get an IME uh, to refute that. Yeah, and New York's one of those jurisdictions where it starts off as a toe case, and right. two years later it's turned into a right shoulder and a consequential psych uh, sort of situation, mm -hmm. and we're not joking when we say that uh, it's really rare to have mm -hmm. a claimant be put in MMI by their own treating physician. Um, mm -hmm. The average time, this is from the board's own statistics that they just recently released, uh, 6.4 years from date of injury to the average uh, finding of maximum medical improvement, and of course, we're using IMEs during the course of the case mm -hmm. to try to get that case to MMI so we can start talking about permanency so we can reduce medical care stop those indemnity benefits right. for temporary total disability. Um, no limit to how many IMEs right. we can get during the course They're of the case. They're very costly, though, so we that, wanna... <laughs> Absolutely. They are expensive in New York. Uh, but we're absolutely using them strategically to sort of move the case forward. Right. Uh, all right. Let's talk a little bit about how we set them up. This is a very much a form over function state in terms of that. Let's talk about that. Right. So there's a few forms that... Uh, that need to be used for scheduling an IME and going through the process of obtaining an IME. The first is an IME-5. The IME-5 basically notifies the claimant that they're up for an IME and they're going to be scheduled for one. It should be sent at least seven days prior to the actual date of the IME. Um, you could stipulate uh, if you want to do it sooner if the other attorney agrees to that. Um, after the IME is scheduled, you send over the IME-3. The IME-3 is basically all medical reports that you want the IME physician to look over before providing an opinion. And then lastly is the IME-4, which is, I would say, the most important. It's the actual IME report. Um, it needs to be served to the board within 10 business days of the date of the IME. Um, if it's not followed, if that time frame is not followed, it's the basis for preclusion. We want to avoid that. Right. We're going to talk about preclusions in a sec, but before mm -hmm. we get there, let's just talk about these 
three forms that we have up on the screen for you right now. First of all, these are all board-required forms. They are right. not optional. Uh, New York is an extraordinarily strict state mm -hmm. for scheduling IMEs. Uh, let's talk about the IME 5 for just a second. This is the notice to the claimant that we are going to schedule an IME. And mm -hmm. let's just talk about some of the problems that we see with these IME 5s. Well, the IME 5, again, has to be sent to the claimant's counsel, the treating physician, the claimant, and it has to be sent to the board. If it's not sent to any of those parties, it could be precluded. Right. And um, before we go any further, let's talk about who the treating physician is. Right. Any physician that's treated the claimant in the past six months. Um, consultations don't count. Uh, any doctors who've reviewed MRIs and stuff like that, that doesn't count. They actually have to treat the claimant with within the past six months, and they have to be sent a form indicating that the claimant is scheduled for an IME. And with the IME 3, so the IME 5 sets the schedule. The IME 3 is all the documents to the IME doctor. Right. And our challenge with that is the board recently changed the way that's done. Right. And we have to make sure with the IME 3. Um, the IME 3 is obviously attached to all medical reports that you want the, treating phys uh, the IME physician to look at. Uh, the only problem is that we cannot send any medical records to the IME physician that are already in the board file, so you don't want to duplicate the medical reports. If you do that, that's also a basis for preclusion at this point. Right, and you've heard the word now preclusion many times. Our goal in life is to avoid the Section 137 preclusion of the reports. Right. That's basically any violation. I mean, mm -hmm. basically we're seeing uh, our adversaries move very quickly, very uh, strenuously to try to get our reports precluded. Right. Our adversaries and the law judges, they yeah. also look for a basis to preclude our reports. Um, we want to make sure it follows the regulations provided by Section 137. Uh, we want to make sure that they're sent timely within the 10 days that we're allowed. Uh, we want to make sure the doctor is qualified, that he's board certified, um, you know, and we also want to make sure it's sent to all the appropriate parties. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we've even seen the board preclude our IMEs based on what was sent to the doctor. Right. And recently, I mean, you just had a case in Jamaica where our our uh, IME was precluded because of where the doctor signed it, right? Right. It was it was basically um, it got precluded because opposing counsel indicated that the certification provided by the IME physician was located on the IME form cover sheet and not at the end of the report. And the law judge precluded it. We appealed. It was reversed. Now we can put the certification anywhere in the report. It still has to be in there, um, but it could be on the cover sheet or, if, or it could be at the end of the report, and that's sufficient. Right, and that's just a point to bring up. I mean, not that mm -hmm. specific case, but just exactly how picayune right. these sort of violations could be. In other words, complaining about where the doctor signs the report, which page, exactly. seems to me like it's purely form over function. It definitely is. Right. And I think you also said that the law judges are mm -hmm. kind of feeding into this. They're looking for reasons right. to toss reports, too. Right. They don't want to do depositions. They don't want to read medical transcripts. They want to preclude our IME. So they're also looking for reasons to preclude our IME. All right, so <clears throat> it's going to happen. I mean, it depends on the hearing boy. Right. How many of these cases get, or how many IME reports get precluded? Mm -hmm. uh, but let's just talk about what happens next. If your IME is precluded, mm -hmm. we still have the right to cross-examine the treating physician, the, right. the the medical treatment provider. Some judges won't even let us do that. I mean, mm -hmm. they'll say, "Sorry, your report's precluded. You're stuck with whatever the provider puts in their reports." Right. And we just like to just pause here for a second and just mm -hmm. remind everybody, like, no, mm -hmm. uh, you still have the right to cross-examine your adverse witness. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, we get this question all the time. Yes. Uh, and in fact, we've done this here. But uh, why don't we answer this one? Can you, <laughs> defense attorney, uh, schedule the IME in New York? We can. We could definitely <laughs> schedule it. Um, 
we would recommend only doing so in high exposure cases because it takes up a lot of time. <laughs> right. It's but, expensive. It's more expensive to have us right. do it than typically most of our clients are using vendors. Mm -hmm. right. And the reason for that, again, is because of all those specific regulations mm -hmm. and, and people that need to be copied in these very specific tight timelines. Mm -hmm. uh, but can the defense attorney do it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There's yeah. no rule that says we can't. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, and I think you said high exposure cases, uh, generally speaking, where we generally do that is in death claims. Right. Uh, we've got a dead claimant. There's not going to be an IME, but there is going to be a records review or forensic report. Mm -hmm. These are high exposure cases, and sometimes the causality is a significant issue. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about cases where there are cardiovascular injuries, et cetera. Right. You need a very specialized physician, so in those cases, we would say to use defense counsel. Mm -hmm. Um, we get a lot of questions about what we can send to the IME doctor. Let's talk about that a little bit. So essentially, we can send almost anything to the IME doctor. Um, we have the cover letter, obviously. You could list the, the questions you want answered. Um, and we can also send surveillance video of the claimant. Um, we would recommend doing that if you're not using the surveillance for a Section 114 fraud claim, because anything that you send to the IME doctor, you have to send to all parties. Um, and you can also send non-medical documents, anything pertaining to the claimant's job, his job capabilities, and ask the doctor to comment on that. Sure. And just to go back to the surveillance video, in other words, this is a case, a case, there are many cases in which we get video of the claimant. It's not a per se fraud, right? right. We don't have them working someplace else or competing mm -hmm. in the Olympics or something. Uh, but you can send that surveillance video to the mm -hmm. IME physician and say, hey, review this. Of course, just understand it's going to the other side too. It's going to become part of the board, come part of the board file. <laughs> board file. <laughs> and so everybody's going to see it. It just destroys any surprise value that it might have had. Right. Um, so that's how we can prepare. Now, can I call up the doctor and prepare the doctor? Can I say, okay, uh, uh, Dr. Hussein, uh, you're going to be testifying next week. Let's go over your uh, testimony. I wish, but we can't. Right. <laughs> we can never call the IME doctor. We can't prep them. We can't contact them uh, without the knowledge of the other attorney. Right. And that is called undue influence in New York. That's another ground for the report to be precluded right. and for the employer to be penalized. And that's crazy, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. think about other states that we practice in, primarily New Jersey, mm -hmm. there are really almost no rules governing uh, contact with the IME doctor or what you send to them. Mm -hmm. uh, New York's a very difficult state, but we absolutely can't prep the doctor for testimony. We can't sit down with them and go over proposed cross-examination right. questions and direct. I just can't do that in New York. So we really are litigating this mm -hmm. with sort of one hand uh, tied behind our back. Right. Uh, guess who isn't uh, litigating <laughs> with one hand tied behind our back? Our adversaries. They are absolutely preparing right. their clients. I mean, if you ever want to have some fun, and again, this is the kind of nerdy stuff I'm up to on the weekends. I know you love to yeah, go on YouTube, too. but just go on YouTube and just Google like preparing for your IME, or Google the term how to how to uh, get over on the insurance carriers IME. You will find dozens and dozens and dozens of videos mm -hmm. prepared by attorneys, right. usually plaintiffs' counsel or mm -hmm. claimants' counsel, and in all different states, sort of exploring and explaining to their clients, uh, you know, prepping them. Here's how you present your complaints. Keep a pain journal. Mm -hmm. Do all these things. Um, so that's it's something we can't do, but they yeah, absolutely they definitely can. can do it, and they do do it. <laughs> right, right. All right. Um, Let's talk about missed IMEs in New York. Right. So we have instances where the claimants refuse or don't show up to their IMEs. Um, the first time, usually the law judge allows a second opportunity for the claimant to appear. However, if they do miss two IMEs, we can file an RFA asking the law judge to address the missed IMEs, and we can request the suspension of benefits based on their failure to the IMEs. Right, and that's generally our practice here and generally what we counsel clients to do. Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, we have not seen judges suspend benefits based on a single right. missed IME. And 
by the way, and you're, the complaints or the, the reasons, the excuses mm-hmm. are legion. It's typically I was back in my country right. at the time. I was this traveling was far away. Yeah. I was on vacation. I love this. Yeah. I, I love these. Uh, so generally speaking, the first time they miss it, we generally will do a reschedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes with our adversaries, we'll say, hey, you guys missed it. Uh, look, we, we're, you better waive the seven-day notice requirement. Mm-hmm. Here's the new date. Send your person there, right. and we'll accomplish it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Section 19 does allow us to suspend benefits if they do continually fail to meet or go to the IME. Right. So we have that right. Mm-hmm. Um, can we do surveillance at the IME? I get this question a lot. We could do the surveillance up until the payment goes in for his IME. Right. It's a good way to locate the claimant, but we can't actually do surveillance of the actual IME. So. Right. And, and the, of course, once again, this is New York, so the opposite is true. Right. The claimant can bring in a video camera. In fact, mm-hmm. some of them are hiring, what's the name of that company? IME Watchdogs. IME Watchdog to come in right. and actually videotape, <laughs> professionally videotape them getting their IMEs and then produce these reports mm-hmm. where they complain that the IME was not done appropriately or Properly was too or quick or all the other sort of complaints they have. Mm-hmm. Um, we do like to use the IME in very contested cases mm-hmm. as a place to find the claimant. I mean, how many times does your surveillance agent tell you couldn't locate the person? Them, right. So here's a good chance we know where they're going to be in a certain mm-hmm. time and place. All right, before we go on to the next slide, just a reminder, this is live. We are going to answer your questions. I have a whole separate computer right here lined up so we can start <laughs> to answer your questions as they come in. Right. So don't forget to type in your questions. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about functional capacity evaluations. Right, so functional uh, capacity evaluations, they're usually done towards the end of the case when the claimant is reaching permanency. Um, it's a good way to uh, be prepared before an outlook finding is made. Um, the thing is we cannot force a claimant to take a functional capacity examination, but we could force them if the IME physician recommends it. Uh, so the best way to kind of go about this is ask the physician whether or not a functional capacity examination would be helpful in assessing the claimant's permanency. Right. So that's a question that we would pose to the IME physician in a case mm-hmm. where we thought that was necessary. Right. And we pose it in a very benign way. We say something like, uh, doctor, you're going to be asked to assess uh, functional ability. Would a functional capacity evaluation uh, mm-hmm. benefit you? And if so, please instruct us to obtain one. Right. And then we can go back and ask the law judge, law judge, please force them to go to the functional capacity evaluation. And we've actually right. had them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk about, so the, the goal of this is hopefully to move the case forward. So much of this ends up in litigation. Mm-hmm. And in that litigation, we are then going to present the testimony of our IME doctor uh, to say, hey, this person's benefits should be cut off, mm-hmm. or they have a work capacity, or they have reached MMI, so mm-hmm. all of those things. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you're looking for and, and, and how you're presenting uh, these witnesses at trial. So basically, um, with the depositions, we start off with the doctor's qualifications. We want the IME physician to testify regarding his qualifications, his specialty, and whether he's board certified. That's very important, obviously. Um, And after we go through his qualifications, we start talking about the contents of the report. Uh, Those are the two main topics that we hit, and we want to make sure that our IME doctor testifies consistently with the report that he has provided. Right, and I mean, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Um, when we have someone depart from their report all of a sudden right. on the stand. Um, you know, so one thing you just touched on is going over the qualifications of the doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a sort of a normal pattern that your cross-examination or your direct examination right. goes through, right. and it's something like, hey, are you licensed to practice medicine? Are you mm-hmm. quoted by the board? Right. Has your uh, license ever been the subject of discipline, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And we're really trying to establish the credibility of that physician right, right. there. Um, but 
let's talk about some of the stressful stuff that happens and really when our, oh. when our, exam, when our evaluator is being cross-examined and how we protect that. Right. So basically when they're being cross-examined and they're given information or asked questions and they kind of get rattled or they're kind of not giving a straight answer, obviously hurts our position. Uh, we have to present this testimony and usually the law judge reads the medical that's provided. So we want to make sure that this doctor is good at cross-examinations and can testify clearly and consistently with his report. Right. I hate it when the doctors start departing from their report. Right. And that's basically our adversary's goal. I mean, mm -hmm. when they're cross-examining our physicians, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's a lot of hypothetical questions. It's, Always, doctor, yeah. if you knew about this, or mm -hmm. uh, they'll present him with a fake work scenario and say, right. well, did you know at his job he has to lift 600 pounds every day? Mm -hmm. And the doctor's, well, I didn't know that, but if I did know that, and then all of a sudden they're changing their opinion right. to something else that's not in their mm -hmm. report. So, you know, I, I like to say, I don't want to pick physicians to be evaluators mm -hmm. uh, who are going to treat this person. That's not their goal. Exactly. It's just to give us an objective sort of picture of this claimant's actual workability and, right. and their need for further care. Mm -hmm. So what I care about is that they don't get rattled. I mean, you said right. the word rattled. I do not like yes. it when all of a sudden they're changing their opinion yeah. on the standard. We want to object to any hypothetical questions because that's when their opinion may start changing. So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Okay. So we're about to get to questions. Um, Please, at this time, type them in, and I'm going to turn over here to this other computer we have and start going through them one by one. Okay, so first question just says, Yusra is the best. Congratulations, Yusra. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Sharon asks, uh, Greg, what about extra questions for the doctor? What is the best way to handle extra questions? Because we want our doctors to get the report right once since we cannot reject reports. Uh, if this is answered in the course of the seminar, disregard. Okay, so I don't think, <laughs> Sharon, we're going to talk about this question because it's a super important question for us to go through. Um, what's the best way to handle extra questions? Well, first of all, in writing, of right. course. Yep. The cover letter, yep. Yeah, and, I mean, your clients are asking you all the time to propose questions. Right. So, I mean, we, we're totally okay with putting together a list of questions that you want to send to the IME physician that's tailored specifically to the case if there are extra questions that need to be asked. Um, if for some reason the doctor doesn't answer some of the questions, you can also get an addendum, but we try to get everything in the first report the first time to make sure it's complete, but that's also another option that we can go with. Yeah, and Sharon also brings up another point, the fact that you cannot reject a report once it's once it's done. You can't right. put that toothpaste back in the toothpaste mm -hmm. tube. Mm -hmm. Once this report comes out, it's copied to all parties at the same time There's in the no same way. There's no taking it back. <laughs> There's no taking it back, and this we're stuck with these opinions. So mm -hmm. it is frustrating when you get particularly a bad Permanental disability, right? right. So we can talk a little bit, if anybody wants to ask a question about that, how do you avoid that from happening, but that's a very good question. All right, so Jean asks questions about uh, out-of-state examiners and what about other state standards and the out-of-state examiner's familiarity with New York medical treatment guns. So here we go. Uh, this is from Jean. Greg, talk, talk about out-of-state IMEs and their validity with New York state judges. If an out-of-state examiner is not familiar, familiar with New York medical treatment guidelines or loss of wagering capacity, can we use their other standards? And then she's referring to mm -hmm. occupational disability guidelines or the Academy of Occupational uh, Evaluators guidelines. Okay, so the answer is no. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're using an out-of-state examiner, and I feel like the most common state where this comes up is Florida. Right. Because we have so many claimants. Retiring to Florida. They retire <laughs> down there, right? The weather's great. So they go down to Florida, and right. our uh, client comes up to say, well, what are we going to do? We, we have a great panel of evaluators mm -hmm. in Florida, but they're not necessarily New York doctors. Okay, mm -hmm. so a couple things. First, you are going to want to absolutely tailor very careful questions yes. to those physicians. Two, it's absolutely fair and okay to provide them with a copy of New York Disability Duration Guidelines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you can do that. Um, in regards to 
scheduled loss of use body parts, hands, fingers, feet, toes, knees, elbows, shoulders, right. it's pretty easy because our New York State uh, medical treatment guidelines, sorry, disability duration guidelines are pretty clear. It's all range of motion based. Right. I mean, these are relatively straightforward. You can provide them to them mm -hmm. and have them uh, evaluate based on that. And I also understand there's going to be some pushback or there might be pushback from these out-of-state evaluators saying, I'm not familiar with all these state forms. They don't want to read the volume read that. medical treatment guidelines. Um, right. <laughs> And we have not had that problem, though, mm -hmm. in the populous states where people moved to. They've moved to Arizona, they moved to California, right. moved to Florida. You know, no, nobody's moved to Idaho right. yet, so I, I don't know <laughs> if it's easy to find an evaluator there yet, but right. I, I hope that is responsive to your question, Jean. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, Jean asks, Greg, can you discuss requesting diagnostic tests either prior to or as part of the IME process? Okay, so uh, I think we did sort of touch on that just briefly with the functional capacity mm -hmm. evaluation. Um, I've had very few evaluations where the doctor says this person needs to get a new MRI or something right. like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But you can absolutely have diagnostic tests be part of the IME evaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, a very good example of that is, for example, hearing loss claims, yeah. where we're getting audiometric testing done at the time of the evaluation. Right. Pulmonary claims, mm -hmm. right? Our pulmonary evaluators are having them do their own pulmonary function tests. Right. They're taking chest x-rays. They're basically doing everything short of mm -hmm. the uh, CAT scan mm -hmm. to check out those pulmonary cases. So mm -hmm. you can absolutely have diagnostic testing be part of uh, the IME process. Okay, Sharon asked a question. Um, okay, IME vendors, should they be the ones requesting the functional capacity evaluation, and when would you like functional capacity evaluations done? Uh, this question comes from Sharon. Okay, so uh, again, we talked about this a little bit um, on the functional capacity evaluations right. and when they're actually requested. Yeah, usually it's towards the end of a case when the claimant has reached MMI and you're heading towards outlook territory. Um, you want the functional capacity uh, evaluation to help you when the claimant is outlook. This is something that you can request that the IME physician see if they want. So you would want to put in there, hey, will this help you determine um, the claimant's permanency? So you could have the IME physician comment on that, and that's usually provided through the IME cover letter. Right, and, and just to be clear, you cannot get a functional capacity evaluation on its own in a mm -hmm. vacuum. You need to have an IME doctor directing it. I mean, we could certainly contact our adversaries and say, hey, I'd like to send your guy to a yeah. functional capacity evaluation. I think it would help us all figure out what's wrong with him. <laughs> Uh, right. None of them are ever going to say yes. I mean, right. okay, where you practice in Jamaica. They that... will never, yeah. <laughs> they will object to it. Yeah, it, it won't happen. Right. You want to have the IME doctor ask for it specifically. Okay, so Joe asked almost the same question. Mm -hmm. Can the IME doctor order a functional right. capacity evaluation? And they can. The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like this was a good slide yeah, to have in our presentation today. Everyone's asking about this. Um, okay, Jean says, Greg, are addendums a kiss of death for IME credibility? When do you use them and when do you don't use them? Let's talk about mm -hmm. that one because, yeah, they can sometimes be the they kiss can. of death. I mean, absolutely. Um, in the addendum, we're, mm -hmm. we're basically admitting, hey, there's something wrong with this report or he, this IME physician failed to address something. Some specific issue, right. Right, but sometimes that's all you can do. Right. Um, you know, we can talk a little bit about how we can mitigate mm -hmm. some of that really disastrous opinions mm -hmm. uh, if anybody has a question about that. But, yeah, I don't think addendums look particularly strong. Right, they don't. And I don't like. You want it. to avoid them, but sometimes you need them for clarification. Right, for clarification generally. Right, usually for. Yeah. Um, um, okay, let's go on to Sharon. Um, is there anything the IME vendor can do to assist you to make sure they are ready for testimony prior? Okay, 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Make sure they have their uh, report in front of them <laughs> before they testify. Yeah, I mean, we could tell you <laughs> horror <laughs> stories all day long about this. Uh, I mean, we've had horror stories, uh, everything from, and, and this is not a vendor-specific problem mm-hmm. in any way, absolutely not. Right. This, this is really about talking about the physicians and how right. they're prepared. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had situations where the, the IME physician, even though they were uh, sent letters and, you know, we call, we always, our process here is to send a letter to all parties right. saying, hey, the, our IME physician is available, mm-hmm. here's the day. Mm-hmm. We actually even set it up. We right. schedule the court reporter. We provide the call-in yeah. phone number yeah. so everybody can attend the deposition telephonically. Mm-hmm. And we've still had situations yeah. where you and we call confirm. in. we confirm the day before. <laughs> <laughs> and we've still had situations where any doctors don't appear. So. They just don't appear. They, and they said, oh, mm-hmm. uh, now there are sometimes grounds for that, right? The IME right. doctors pulled There's into surgery. Right. All right, we get that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, from the very basics, you're saying, hey, what, what can we do to make it be more successful with the IMEs? Well, mm-hmm. make them show up. I mean, that's right. step make number one. Up. Okay, and then number two is uh, what kind of preparation does the IME physician have? And I think this goes to all parties, absolutely not just the vendor's responsibility. Mm-hmm. For example, how good is that letter that goes to that doctor? Is How complete is the things that are in the letter mm-hmm. true? Are they true? Did the doctor get stuff that we have that maybe the claimant doesn't have? For example, a job description. Here's your actual job description. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, uh, we, especially in the case of SLUs, um, mm-hmm. some of our clients have gotten very aggressive in, in combating SLUs uh, because they've gotten so ridiculous right. and out of control, um, done things like actually videotape the claimant who has returned to work. I mean, think about a scheduled loss of mm-hmm. use case. You know, this is your cubital tunnel syndrome that's operated. Right. You came back to work. You're doing the same job, same employer. You're working overtime. You know, nothing's no changed. No full restrictions. Wages. Full wages. And they're going for an SLU. Right. Well, videotape them at work and then provide that video to the doctor. I mean, super aggressive. Right. Uh, and a lot of our uh, clients they don't want to do that, you know, especially mm-hmm. in a hospital setting. You right. can't control who, who's going to be in there, and there could be HIPAA mm-hmm. uh, concerns. But um, videotaping that stuff, providing it to the IME physician, giving them more information mm-hmm. than just here's their medical records, here's what they complained about the day you saw them. Right. It's much more helpful, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot to be done mm-hmm. here. Um, also things like um, the video surveillance that was actually made right. for maybe the purpose of establishing a fraud. Maybe it mm-hmm. didn't work, but you do have that great video of the person going about their activities of daily living, right? What do they do all day? Right. You know, get up, take the kids to school. Walk around a little bit. Walk around a little <laughs> bit, buy cigarettes, buy their lottery tickets, you know, buy beer, go home, right. sit on the couch, watch Judge Judy all day. Exactly. Drink beer. You know, we do have this stuff, and, you know, we could mm-hmm. make some use of it. Right. Okay, uh, and okay. So here's a, um, a vendor actually telling me, "Hey, Greg, just for your information, we do send our guidelines, the disability duration guidelines, to out-of-state doctors while we're doing them." All right. So uh, that's all the questions that are not just duplicate questions today. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope we answered everybody's questions. If not, feel free to email us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a copy of our book. Email us. We'll send it right out to you. Uh, this is just a small part. Our webinar is just a small part of what we do here. Please check out our website. We've got lots of articles on there, yes. literally a dozen a month. Uh, we also do a newsletter that we summarize all the articles on our website and mm-hmm. send them out to our clients. Uh, next month's topic is a really fun topic. It is evaluating cases for exposure. Fun. Uh, now, uh, this is like generally one of our best attended webinars of the year, right. and it's because we kind of talk about exactly how we price cases from our right. perspective. So please join us for that. All right. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for joining Bye, us. Bye, guys. Bye.